Good morning. We're, uh, we're getting, kind of wrapping down our series on the Minor Prophets. Have a, uh, just a, two more books. Um, and as we've said, these prophets, these books are not minor because they're unimportant. They're minor because they're small. Uh, but Zechariah is an exception to this. And so uh, we're going to take a, a couple of weeks on Zechariah, which is a rather large uh, book of the minor prophets. And Last week we looked at Haggai, uh, and and what this is really these books kind of go together because they're kind of written at the same time with the same setting going on, um, and we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But we're going to cover the first six chapters, um, and the first thing I want us to look at is how it opens that it's God's vision for repentance, that, that we're going to see that, that there are visions and, and strange symbols being used throughout this, uh, these first six chapters, and so we want to look at the, that God is a God of vision. So the first thing is that God's, God's vision for repentance, and we see that as it opens in verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, prophet Zechariah the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways, indeed, so has he dealt with us. And so, while we saw last week, Haggai was more concerned about the temple, Okay. Um, it was more concerned about this temple. God had saw, hey, y'all are taking care of your own houses. My temple for, for 17 years has, has been in shambles. You, you laid the foundation and you quit. And, but the, the, I think the thing that Zechariah is addressing is what good is a temple if the heart of the people are, are, is not right? And so Zechariah is much more about, it's not about a building uh, that needs to be built. It's about, hey, your hearts need uh, to be changed. And we see here him opening with a vision for repentance. And a few things I want you to notice about this opening is, first, that God will respond to our repentance. You know, it's, it's interesting. God says in verse 2, I'm angry about your fathers and how they behave. But what does he say out of that anger? Does he say, hey, I'm giving up on you as well? Okay, your fathers were awful, you're going to be awful, and so I'm just done with you. No, in, in verse 3, he speaks out of love and says, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, hey, if you will return to me, if you'll repent, and I stand ready to just... for to, to, to be yours and for you to be my people and for you to enjoy the life that your fathers never really enjoyed because they just kept on in their rebellion. He says, turn to me 
and I will turn, return to you. And, and, and to know that we serve the kind of God that says, hey, repent, repent, and I will observe that repentance and I will respond to that repentance. We see here that God calls each generation to repent anew. It says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Now, if we've seen anything in the minor prophets, it's the people's resistance to God. And so we, we know as he says this, we've seen it in the minor prophets, is that, man, people, the people were rebellious. And it's not about what your parents did or who your parents were. It's about what you're going to be. And God's saying, hey, Listen, your parents made a lot of mistakes. They lived in rebellion. They were very slow to repent. And it's about what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's not about what our generation... Each generation should seek to be more godly, to pick up the challenge of, hey, I want to be more godly than my parents were. I, want, I don't think any godly parent would want that of their kids. I want my parents to seek godliness better than I did. And so we see repentance is, is to be renewed. It doesn't matter who you are, that you're, um, whether or not you're in God's chosen nation. It's about what you're going to do. You don't inherit repentance. It says God calls us to, re we see here that God calls us to repent according to his word. It says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded, my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? It's not about, you know, a lot of times I think we get caught up in, oh, things need to be like they were when, when my, uh, my parents were, were, were growing up or my grandparents. That's when we were moral. That's when we were a moral nation. And the reality is, is that every nation has dealt with sin. Every nation, it's just, we, we just find different ways to sin or different emphasis of sinning. It's not about going back to, hey, the way my father was or the way my mom was or the way my grandparents were. It's about looking at the Word because it says, hey, your, your parents are gone, but my Word stands strong even still. We see that God has a vision for the, for the future. Um, there's eight visions that then come out of the first six chapters uh, of Zechariah. Uh, it looks a lot like Revelation in its deep imagery of things. And, man, there are some wild visions happening here. There's some crazy things. Okay, women in baskets, flying scrolls. Like, there's odd, strange, that seems so foreign and distant to us type uh, pictures. And when we look at this type of, of literature, I think we need to remember a couple things. First of all, it's beauty. We are tempted to look at visions such as these and say, well, that's weird. I don't get that. Women in baskets, flying scrolls, uh, people with plumb lines, what's that all about? But aren't you glad we serve a God of imagination? A God whose ways are so complex and so amazing that even when He stoops to try to give us images, they're so wild and big and amazing and, and beyond our comprehension. Let's embrace this amazing imagery of the books like Zechariah. I mean, after, after all, wouldn't it be boring if, man, if we read the Scriptures and it was always just what we knew and, 
And it never stretched our minds, and it, it never caused us to go, what's that about? I would wonder if we're serving a God at all, if I can always put him in my box, if I can always figure out what he's saying and what he's portraying in his words. I would, I would wonder, man, did, a man, did just men write this? No, it's a God that, that's so big that he blows our minds sometimes with his amazing imagery. But I want us to also notice that it's difficult literature. It, to me, personally, it's some of the most difficult type literature in Scripture or anywhere. It, it, it's just not easy to process. It's not always easy to nail down. If anyone tells you when they look at, a, at imagery like this and say, well, I know 100% what all these pictures mean, when you're thousands of years removed from it, uh, they're, they're trying to sell you a book uh, that they wrote or something. And they're way too confident in their inter- interpretation skills. Because man, in this type of literature, you're dealing with, with, uh, with things that are going to be fulfilled immediately uh, in the people of Israel that are being written to. Uh, there are things that are going to be fulfilled in, in the future uh, for the nation being written to. You're dealing with things to be uh, yeah, to be fulfilled in the distance, distant future. You're dealing with other things that both, as we'll see in this scripture, as both kind of, this is happening now, but this is pointing to something huge that's happening later as well. It's like there's this fulfillment and then there's the ultimate fulfillment. And so the lines are sometimes blurry, and it's, 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 uh, but yet if we squeeze them, as we'll see in a moment, we'll, we'll really get some amazing truth from these visions. And so I'll, I'll say that this is, this is probably the most challenging sermon in the Minor Prophets that we've done in this series, or, or for me to prepare. And so what I'm going to do, because we don't have time, we, we just don't have time to look at all eight of these visions in depth, but here are the eight visions and kind of what I think a lot of scholars agree that, that maybe it's talking about. Uh, the first is a vision of a horseman, and this seems pretty clear because it's, it's, it's explained pretty in depth in it, and that's God's devotion to Jerusalem. As we looked at last week, there's like a remnant. There's a small number coming back to Jerusalem to, to restart things and get things going again, and, and it's God saying, hey, I'm going to be devoted to you, and, and I'm going to do great things. Uh, this isn't the end of Jerusalem. This is just the beginning Second vision we see, a vision of horns and craftsmen. And uh, it seems to be speaking of the judgment of those who have mistreated uh, Jerusalem uh, or mistreated Judah. And so this is God saying, I'm going to deal with those that have been the enemies of, of, uh, of my people. The third vision is a vision of a man with a measuring line. Um, and this is about God's returning Jerusalem to glory. The remnant of Israel would, would grow. Uh, this, this remnant would become something big, something major again. And I love what it says in verse 11 of chapter 2 in this vision. Because I, I think, I think you've got to step and, and look at the end of time to see this, this, this fulfilled. It says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This would have been really weird, I think, for them to have heard that all these nations are coming back to Israel. They're, they're just trying to get their nation started back there. And, and this prophecy is saying, 
hey, all the nations, all the many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. I think this is, you have to step out of just the immediate fulfillment and really look to what, what God does through Christ in bringing the nations together uh, as one people. We see a vision of, the, of Joshua the high priest, and we'll actually spend a little time on this in a moment, but it's God's work in consecrating the priest Joshua that we were introduced last week. Not, not Joshua, the successor uh, of Moses, but Joshua the high priest. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. And then a vision, the fifth vision is a vision of a golden lampstand that shows God's power being present with Zerubbabel, the, the ruler that we were also introduced in, in Haggai. In six, we have a vision of a flying scroll, which uh, represents purification of the land, uh, that the iniquity of the land will not stand, that God's going to take care of evil. Um, uh, seventh vision is a vision of a woman in a basket, which is similar, that evil is going to be kicked out of the land and kicked back to Babylon. Um, and then a vision of four ch- chariots is the last vision, which is, God's, uh, God's, it's not just about this area. He's saying, hey, to the ends of the earth is my authority and my power. And what I want to, one of the things that just emerges in these first six chapters is, uh, is this vision of, of God's sign in these two men, of Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who is a ruler uh, of, of the nation. And so we see just a mingling of these two offices and it says here to close out after the vision in in chapter 6 verse 9 it says this and the word of the lord came to me take from the exiles heldai uh, tobijah and jedidiah or jediah who have arrived from babylon and go to the same day to the house of josiah the son of zephaniah Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear bear royal honor and shall sit uh, and rule on on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. We have here in the first six chapters these, this real interesting mingling of the king of kingship and priesthood. Here the priest Joshua is actually crowned with, a, they make a crown for Joshua, they crown him and then they say that crown's going to stay in the temple, uh, which is kind of a different kind of way of operating. And then back in Vision Five, we have a God talking about this this ruler Zerubbabel, who's going to be a man that his spirit's going to be with, that he's going to help build the temple. Okay, so we have this mingling of these offices of priest and king in a way that we don't normally uh, see it. And so I want us to kind of, that's where I want us to kind of take something really major from uh, these amazing visions. And the first thing I want us to see is the priest who consecrates. And you've got you to gotta look at this amazing picture of this consecration of Joshua found in chapter 3. 
This is what it says. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. What an amazing, beautiful picture of what God does, not just in this moment, but in salvation. You got a dirty priest. You got a man, and, and by all accounts, uh, it seems like he was a, a good priest, okay? Joshua's there's not a lot bad said about him. He's not one of these bad priests that, that we read about. He seems like a good one. And yet even the priest, the, the man that is the representative of, the, of, the, of the, the priesthood of God, he's filthy. Even he, the best they have to offer, is filthy because we're all filthy. This is the condition of even the best of us. Filthy, covered in stains. And we see also the other person who is here in this room. It's Satan, the accuser. And what is he ready to do? He's ready to do what Satan does. To accuse. He wants, he's the accuser as it calls him here. What he's ready to do is he's ready to point out every filthy stain on the priest Joshua. He's ready to say, look at all the filth on one of your priests, God. Look at all the dirt and the filth on this man. And what I love about it is he doesn't even get to talk. Satan, the accuser with his big mouth ready to accuse God's man, he doesn't even get to talk. He gets rebuked. And God says, he's mine. And what does he do? He orders them to take those nasty, filthy clothes and take them off of him. And he says, bring in the pure, white, beautiful linens and place them on my priest. Like this, it doesn't say here, but I would love, I'd love to know if it played out. And then it's like, you got something to say now, Satan? I took care of it. Because that's what I do as God. I take care of sin. I consecrate my people. What a glorious Old Testament picture of the gospel. Listen to me. If you come in here in this room today, and you come filthy. And make no mistake, if no work of God's been done in your life, you come filthy. If you come here filthy, Satan desires to accuse you. And maybe you feel that accusation, and maybe, man, Satan in his accusation is telling you, hey, you could never be clean. 
Look at your filthy garments. You'll never be accepted by God. No way, no how. I want you to know something. That although Satan accuses you, though Satan speaks accusation into your life, you have a God that through Christ has done the work that, that needs to be done to remove those filthy garments and place upon you the righteousness of His Son. What a glorious thought that we do not have to remain in our filth and in our dirt, but that the work of Christ will silence the accuser Satan. Look what happens next. It uh, says, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, in the stone, uh, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this, of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And this seems like, in this, this is one of those moments where God's doing something special in the life of Joshua, the high priest, but also saying, look ahead, this points to something amazing. It says in verse 8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. If you'll remember back uh, during our time of celebrating Christmas and, and, uh, and, and looking at the coming of Christ, we, we examined Christ as the branch uh, out of the stump of Jesse. If you remember that, Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. As verse 9 says, at, as Christ is ultimately the branch that, that will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Only Christ is going to be able to do that. Other priests, can, can, they can offer animal sacrifices and they can take care of things for a day, offer a little appeasement, but it's only the work of Christ that can remove the iniquity of the people in one day. It is, Christ, it is through Christ and Christ alone that we will stand before the Lord and, say, and Satan, the accuser's big mouth, will be zipped tight. Do you, do you know that priest? This morning, do you know that priest? Do you know the priest that consecrates in one day? You can be clean this morning. And we see also this sign of, a, of the king who will rule. We see in the fish, fifth vision God's promise of his spirit to be with Zerubbabel. It says, then he said to me, this is the word of, in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace 
grace to it. So God tells Zerubbabel, hey, listen, you're going to be a great ruler. You're going to rebuild the temple. Great things are going to happen through you, but it's not going to be through your might. It's not going to be because you're a powerful political leader. It is because my spirit will be with you. And we know that while Joshua the, the priest and Zerubbabel the ruler were able to accomplish great things in their, their day, they were just a taste of what was going to come. Although the, God granted these men these amazing moments of consecration, of power, it was all to point forward to a, a sign of the one, it was a sign to point forward to the one that would come and rule as prophet, right, and priest and king. The ruler who could consecrate the people, take care of their sins, and rule and put an end forever of all evil and all iniquity. It is only through Christ that we are made holy and we are kept holy by His amazing rule. I'm going to ask you to please stand as our musicians come. Do you need to repent? Do you need to be someone who, you know, maybe you are converted, but and there's just some things in your life that you haven't spoken to God about, you haven't started uh, putting up a fight against in your life, and, and uh, you're repeating maybe sins that you saw in your parents growing up or your grandparents, and you're just doing the same thing. God's calling us to repent afresh to be who He's called us to be, which He has called us through His Word. And maybe you're here and you still stand before the Lord in dirty clothes, in shame, fully deserving of accusation. This morning, if you would respond to the Gospel and what Christ has done for you, you can know what it's like to have those sins removed to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Respond however God has spoken to you through His Word this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for vivid, mind-boggling images. God, images that stretch the mind, but even in the midst of those images, Images where the gospel comes out so precious and so clear. And God, we thank you for the righteousness that comes through Christ. We thank you for Christ who is the one, the priest who consecrates us. And the king who rules us. God, may we be people who look towards him as our priest and our king. In Jesus' name I pray.